Okay. Um, Do you do the language warning? Yeah. So language warning, take one. Hey, everyone. Warning, 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 SOS. No, that's annoying. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Hey, everyone. On this episode of Unorthodox, we are likely to engage in ethnic chauvinism, inside baseball, and Lashon Hara. We may also use bad language. If any of those things doesn't appeal to you, we invite you to join another podcast community. Hello, Jews and others bundling up for December. This is Unorthodox, the weekly podcast from Tablet Magazine. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, joined as ever by Tablet Senior Writer. Senior. Leah Leibowitz. I'm working you do on my have puns. a look right oh. now. Like, you look like you have a top knot, like a, like a ponytail in the back. Right. Your, hair, your, your front back. hair is swept back in a way you expect a top knot. Yeah, you uh, definitely. Yes, yes, yes. Can you turn around? Can we see? I'm a senior writer. And tablet deputy editor, Stefan Butnick. What up? And it's actually Stefani. So Stefani. That's my alter ego. And our Jew of the Week is Naftali. <laughs> I wish I knew how to say this guy's last name. He's going to tell me. Our Jew of the Week carries a big knife. Yeah. So I would not get his name Speak wrong. Speak softly. Our yeah. Jew of the Week is Naftali, H-A-N-A-U, who is a certified shopper. Hey now. I like hey now. Hey now. All right. Who is a shochet, a certified kosher slaughterer, trying to bring ethics and fair treatment of animals into the world of kosher meat. He runs a Brooklyn firm called Grow and Behold, and he is secretly also related to me. And we'll get to that. Does he know that? I don't know if he remembers that. I'm actually this is be great. This is actually the gotcha portion. Yeah, exactly. Surprise. And get this. Our Gentile of the Week is Snap Judgment host Glenn Washington. So, what's up, Jews? I just got a text from my sister that said there's like increased police presence outside of all these synagogues she's walking by like on the way to work and I think that's really creepy yeah I wonder why yeah I know where does she live she lives on the Upper East Side what would happen she was probably walking her dog and like I feel like you hit a lot of synagogues well is it also I mean she's in the vicinity of the Kushner synagogue of you know KJ you think that's what it isn't that on the west side no, oh, no, KJ, no, that's BJ. No, B, BJ's on the west side, KJ's on the east side. It's hard to, hard to for, keep those tracks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's that, you know, the world still. End times. End, end times. times. It, I, you know, I was at Minion last night. I go to Monday. Monday Night Minion is uh, is something I do. And, <laughs> and That's like the most Mark Oppenheimer thing in the world. Like, it's actually you and your daughters. The Shabbat thing doesn't really work well, but Monday is convenient for us. Too, we, uh, we put no, in our no, no. beautiful sweaters. We will post a picture of today's sweater. It's a controversial sweater, even in my own household. It's but, a real, it's very sweater. And You're also I, wearing a plaid shirt. Yeah, I went, for, I, but I knew what I was doing. So I'm in on the joke. If, if like, you, you look like you embody Thanksgiving right now. I like to. I, think, I don't know if he embodies Thanksgiving. I think he embodies what everyone who voted for Trump think every single one yeah. of us look like. That's yeah, right. you're not like, doing the like spectacle the spectacle Jew yeah. with good hair and funky sweaters. I'm like, that that's guy. At least you... they give us good hair. Um, so I was at Minion last night, and somebody came in and on their cell phone said, "There's a fire at the JCC at the Jewish Community Center, which is two, three miles away." And it turns out there was, and it was some electrical fire, and it was, everyone was fine, and there was no real fire. Fire just brothers. Smoke. But of course, my first thought was, "Are they setting our JCCs on fire?" Like it was actually a little bit. It was a little bit freaky. Um, also in our house, you should know that uh, we bought a six-foot-tall bear. Is that um, what you call me now? <laughs> so it's almost as big as Liel. So Ellie was visiting – so Ellie's our, our eight-year-old, and she was visiting uh, my parents last weekend, and they took her to TJ Maxx. And my mom said – That's actually what you do with grandparents. Yeah, I my mom – Absolutely I lo- what you do with grandparents. We call grandparents. it TJs. That is what they do with my yeah, mother. So She's fun. the TJ Maxx mother. Yeah, yeah it's my grandma. Uh, it's well, not... it used to be Lomans. KJ on the east side, and, and BJ it? on the west side. <laughs> TJ with a grandparents. TJ downtown. Yeah. <laughs> so it's funny because when they when they visit Gaga, who's who's lower east side grandma, they bake cookies and. 
to a skating in Bryant Park and whatever. When they visit my mother, it's TJ's. So she took Ellie to TJ's and she owed Ellie a few like gifts. Like she for some for some reason she forgot last year's birthday gift or or the gift didn't work out or it broke or something. But it in and then there's this year and then there's Hanukkah plus the birthday that just happened. So she basically said, "You get a big present." And Ellie walked into TJ's. And she looked over at Big, huh? the home goods part of it. You know the home goods yeah. part because oh, yeah. it's TJ slash home goods. Home goods is the best. And she um, and she saw this bear that I, when I say it's six feet tall, I'm not kidding you. And she ran and jumped in its lap and curled up and said, "This is all I want." Every teddy bear who's been good is sure of a treat today. So my mom called me and Sid. Like we each had these five messages on our cell phone at one p.m. <laughs> and my mother's calling saying, "Can I buy you?" A six-foot-tall bear, and we both sort of agreed. Well, look, if it's what Ellie wants. This bear was seventy dollars. <laughs> no, so it wasn't like on the clearance clearance no. rack. Well, it's it like yes, to go. I think it was. I think it was seventy dollars down from five hundred dollars. This bear now, is what enormous is, and plushy. What is the bear's name? And the bear, after there was a caucus of all the daughters, and they agreed to name the bear Stariana Honey Oppenheimer. Sariana is a beautiful name that only a child, like only a young girl could think of. Yeah, because it's in their mind. It's like what the next figure skating gold medal winner will be named. Or like Disney princess. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, Stariana. Yes, Stariana. Yeah, she's already a Russian figure. So, so, so now she's putting out a, a publication called the Barrington News, and she's very influential in media. Where oh, oh this live? is Ariana. You're doing Ariana. Isn't this obvious? It took from me a my, second. my absolute spot on impersonation of Ariana Greek, Huffington. That's Greek accent. So we'll put a picture of Stariana in the newsletter. Okay, where does Stariana live in your house? So this is a question, right? Initially we said, okay, Stariana will have to be sequestered in the basement, but then Stariana took up residence in a rocking chair in our living room, which... <laughs> She fits in perfectly, and you can then go sit in her lap. In oh, the... that's nice. But then last night when I went to kiss Ellie goodnight, I discovered Stariana was lying on her floor. So Stariana now lies in front of the bunk beds, and she takes up the entire length of the bunk beds. In the middle of the night, Ellie got up, and I brought her back to bed, and she lay down half asleep and hugged Stariana, like just full body lay on her, on, on Stariana, hugged her, and then rolled herself into bed. That's perfect. Oh, because the bear is that the big. Bear is that I'm just rising. telling you, I've seen this movie, and the next scene is you waking up in the middle of the night, and Stariana's there with a kitchen knife. That's what we're afraid of. No, it's Stariana's there with like a joint. We're yeah. talking about Ted, too, right? <laughs> Do you guys have anything that exciting in your lives? No. No. All right. Well, my then... father's here for a visit. What? It's sort of big the equivalent run. of a Stariana. Of a large yeah, bearish thing there in your drinks. Yeah. And and what does he do with the kids? What's it? What are his grandpa moves? This is bank robber Ronnie. His grandpa moves are pretty much. You know, the kids' moves. There's great synergy there. Video games. Like, uh, why don't we jump on the bed and shout for four hours? And they're like, that's a fine idea. Let's just do that. That's strong grandparenting, though. Do you want to eat chocolate and get candy? Because that's what I do. And they're like, yeah, that's what we do, too. That's amazing. It's great. It's perfect. So in another two or three years, you could be sending them to Israel for a week. No, in another two or three years, they would have outgrown grandpa. Grandpa. (laughs) (laughs) Right now, the three-year-old and five-year-old are perfectly aligned. Um, I'd like to welcome some new subscribers to our newsletter, and I just because these names, I love, I love the diversity and beauty and gorgeousness of the mosaic of our newsletter subscribers. Nate Shapiro, you know what we should do? I'm sorry, mosaic of our mosaic of, of our mosaic subscribers. We should play. The theme to Schindler's List as our new subscribers join us. <laughs> and instead of goodbye, Jews, we should say, hello, Jews. Hello. Oh my welcome, God. Jews. All right. Uh, welcome aboard Nate Shapiro, Marcus Aaron. Let, I love the sort of the melody of these names. Nate Shapiro, 
Marcus Aaron, Beth Rabin, Julia Klavachik, Myra Feiger, Jenny Gates, Beckman, Joel Pliskin, Glenn Levy, and in Israel, Ellie Mike. The best law firm ever. <laughs> ever. Shapiro, Aaron, Rabin, Klavachik, Feiger, Beckman, Pliskin, Levy, and Ellie Mike. For all of your divorce needs. Also, I just want to give a shout out to Heather, Chris, and her husband who are listening to us in Jew-free Eastern Washington State. They are keeping the flame alive. And also to my favorite letter writer of the week, Nathaniel Oppenheimer, whom I'm, I'm not related to. But if there are other Oppenheimers out there listening, or Butniks or Leibowitzes, just say hi. Just say hi. To get the newsletter, which is now being written by Liel Leibowitz. There was a coup. There was now, a coup. Now with 300% Bloodless. more gun references <laughs> in your unorthodox newsletter. With an NRA membership button at the bottom. Send an email asking for the newsletter to unorthodox at tabletmag.com. Little news of the Jews. Last week, as you know, we tried our best to talk about the first family elect that shall not be named. But the first family elect cannot stay out of the news of the Jews. Kugelgate. This from the... I quote from the Daily Forward, a recipe for broccoli kugel that Ivanka Trump claimed was her own family favorite is actually a word-for-word copy of a recipe by a well-known Jewish cookbook author. Well, initially it was Michelle Obama's kugel recipe. (laughs) The recipe that the future first daughter presented as her own, posted in May on her website, IvankaTrump.com, is virtually identical to a recipe in a 2011 post by Jamie Geller on her website, Joy of Kosher. Both recipes call for two pounds of broccoli, four eggs, and a cup of light mayonnaise, but the similarities go well past the ingredients. Trump's instructions are worded exactly as Geller's with only a few words changed. When asked about the matching recipes, a spokeswoman for Geller's company, Kosher Network International, said that the company is flattered that Trump had featured Geller's broccoli recipe. Look, this is a Kugel recipe. Obviously, we all know Kugel. There's no less Jewish sentence than both recipes call for two pounds of broccoli, four eggs, and a cup of light mayonnaise. Yeah, like, is that even... Like, what? What? Is it still Kugel when those are your What kind of maniac puts broccoli well, in that's the Kugel best totally. thing. On that Twitter, absolutely on Twitter, people are like, bizarre. this isn't Kugel, it's broccoli. Like, that's their issue. <laughs> right, it's like a broccoli mayonnaise salad, basically. It's, it's my issue, too. <laughs> okay, the best thing is that this article is like the follow-up to a different article that basically was like, Ivanka Trump has a Kugel recipe. Right. And someone was like, you know, Jimmy Geller is like a big deal. She's a big deal, right. You don't, you know, if you're going to rip something off. The Trumps should... are not, they're not subtle about their rip. They, like, they they want to be caught. That's they have a need, the they have a death thing. drive. They the have a con death... is absolute. It's not just like, look, we're going to con you a little bit and then we're just going to do our thing. It's like, we're going to con you on every imaginable level. You think the Kugel is safe? No, 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 no. no the Kugel <laughs> is a fraud. Everything is a fraud. I wonder if like people coming for Shabbat at Ivanka's table are treated the same way that Trump voters are now treated. It's like, look, I know I promised you Kugel. <laughs> it's just it, was, it was just words. Uh, here's some broccoli. <laughs> A broccoli mayo. In news from across the pond, Israel won't let ex-New York Nick, now Israeli b-ball player Amari Stoudemire's son play basketball because he's really good at basketball. And also, they claim it's because he's not Israeli. 12-year-old Deuce Stoudemire. Oh, my God. Did you guys know his son was named Deuce? I, I, how, what else That's would amazing. Amari's son be named? George Foreman. Um, he's been... That was good. Hello, could I get some... That was... That was, that was, it was, it was, that was a little racist. Okay. A little racist. 12-year-old... kind of funny. Deuce Stoudemire has been banned from Israeli youth basketball because they say he's not Israeli. So Peter Kurtz, the president of the Israeli Baseball Association, has thrown open the doors, has rolled out the red carpet, saying, quote, just as the great Michael Jordan made a switch from basketball to baseball, so do we believe that your son can too, and even more successfully. Wait, even more successfully than Michael Jordan Michael playing Jordan. baseball? Okay, I just want to see, make sure that the bar is the bar set, is... like, very high. Look, do you as, figure... as the former second baseman for the Herzliya Hawks, 
Let me tell you, it's a competitive league. <laughs> okay, are the Herzliya Hawks the ones that wear like the little the like the trackers for Mossad? <laughs> Finally, porn legend Jenna Jameson, who I didn't realize was converting to Judaism. Have we talked? Very to, we publicly, haven't talked about that. Very publicly, yeah. like via Instagram. I um, think she's converting. That's how one does it. In a tweet this week, porn legend Jenna Jameson, who recently said she has completed a conversion to Orthodox Judaism, wrote that she has a quote massive crush on Benjamin Netanyahu. She later commented that Bibi's wife, Sarah, was a, quote, lucky woman to be married to a, quote, complete badass. But it gets weirder. Former KKK super archon deluxe supremo wizard and perennial political candidate David Duke, he tweeted with all those brackets with the echoes around her name, Jenna Jameson reveals massive crush on Netanyahu and Jews dominate porn. Why are Christians okay with that? That is the weirdest tweet ever. He's he's accusing us of dominating porn, which is we which is debatable. In fact, seems to me I don't know much about porn, I'll say. And I'd cop to it if I did, but I don't. But I don't think we dominate it. But if we did, wouldn't David Duke want that? Like does he want Christians to be better than Jews at porn? I think he wants Christians to like decry porn and Jews are like the sinister force behind this like awful thing. The scourge. The Christians aren't speaking out against our porniness yes. enough. And that we are trying to like, we're poisoning the country, I think. But by the way, I have to say, I th- I'm pretty sure your conversion is complete when David Duke puts the brackets around your name yes. on Twitter. Like yeah. that, you go, you know, you do the mikvah. Welcome, to the, yeah. Welcome to the club. Yeah. It's Duke a last step. <laughs> Let's have a moment of real honesty here. Have you seen a Jenna Jameson movie, Leo? Oh, sure. Like many? No. But one movie many times? Like what's your porn consumption level? You know how open I am about my vices? I know you are. This has really never been one of them. There is something so, and God help me, it kind of revolts me. You know, I it feel the murders same the way. imagination. It's it's an it's an affront against the only thing that really should remain sacred about human life. No, it's just disgusting. Okay, not think... because it's like oh, disgusting. It's just like really, yeah. Just just fan, just use your brain. Like you have. Do you such think a inserting gift. Bibi Netanyahu into that would help? It makes it a lot hotter <laughs> because then you can imagine like Naftali Bennett in there and like Vigdor Lieberman and there's like. What about Yair Lapid? He'd be great. I want to say I think this is the first time anyone has called Sarah. Netanyahu. Yahoo, a lucky woman. <laughs> Listen, we have upcoming live shows. Well, we have one up. We have one we can tell you about February 10th at Temple Israel in West Palm Beach. And we're working on some super top secret cool other ones to be announced soon. It's going to be huge, huge, very, very big. <laughs> If you want to book us for a live show, contact our producer Suprema, Alyssa Goldstein, at egoldstein at tabletmag.com. We're going to embark on the Lying Press Tour. That's right. The Lugan Press. While you're on your computer emailing us to schedule a live show, also subscribe to us on iTunes and review us on iTunes. And then send us an email saying you reviewed us on iTunes and you'll get a cool free gift. And we're already getting emails back from people who've gotten the cool free gift saying, wow, that was a cool free gift. And then hang with us on Facebook. I I always eavesdrop on the tablet Facebook page when we post the episode and read your comments and whatnot. So so join me there.
All right, everybody, special Jew of the Week, Naftali Hanau. He's the founder and CEO of Grow and Behold Foods, the Brooklyn-based purveyor of fine kosher pastured meats raised on family farms with no hormones or antibiotics. He's a shochet and a menaker. What's a menaker besides a last name? <laughs> menaker, actually. What's it's a menaker? Menaker is the guy who removes the forbidden veins and fats from oh. the red meat. Naftali is frequently sought out to consult on kosher slaughter. He's been a judge for Masbia's Chop Hunger and Jamie Geller's Kosher Masters 2000. We were just talking about Jamie Geller since Ivanka Trump stole her Kugel. Oh, the Kugel Gate was the best. Kugel oh Gate. my God. <laughs> yeah. Did any member of the Trump family steal any recipe or slaughtering method from you? No comment. Oh, they did. I would take that as a yes. That's we, a yes. No comment. If you were invited to the Trump White House to talk oh. about ethical shakita, would you go? Wow, you guys get right to the tough questions. He hasn't even it, asked you how much money you make yet, which is um, like you coming good up. for him. Yeah. You know, um, I generally go where I'm invited. So I would have to think about it. Um, I, I'd have to think about it. It's a tough hard. call, isn't it? It's a tough call. Like if they asked you to to be the like you know the Ooh, the White House yeah shochet. the White House shochet or mishkiach or something and and you know How amazing <laughs> if they had one because we're basically moving back to like czarist Russia. So yeah. they may as well have a shochet at yeah, the White House. Why would you I be mean, their court Jew? No, they, they already, already have a court yeah. They have I mean, a court <laughs> Come on. Um, you know, that, I, I have to say it would be a hard one to turn down because, um, you know, that's a market right there. You know, they've got, you know, kosher in-laws. That's a lot of, it's a lot of kosher meat. That's they, Hanukkah party. It's so a lot of state dinners. It's a lot of state dinners. It's a lot of visibility. That's right. Um, so how does a nice young man end up as a shulchan? That is what my grandmother said. She was mortified when I told her I was learning um, kosher slaughter. But I was working on farms. Um I had gone to horticulture school. That was kind of a, uh, I jumped off from having a landscaping business in high school. And then I went to horticulture school at the New York Botanic Garden in the Bronx. You were a, a, a crunchy hippie Jew from the start. It's like Not deep, from the start. No, no. no. I, I, I grew up like modern Orthodox in Rochester, New York, just uh, like a, a normal non-New York area, what, what people in New York call out of town, but right. like normal modern Orthodox. I went to day school. I went to yeshiva in New York for a year at MTA, which is why I use high school, and quickly discovered that I'm not a yeshiva boy. Um, it didn't really work for me to be in kind of such a rigid environment where you know, I, I was taught to be an independent thinker, and that was not so easy in yeshiva, so I went home to public school. I did have the crunchy stage, for sure. Um, I worked at Adama, which is a Jewish organic farming fellowship, and when I started there, I was really more on the landscaping horticulture track. And then one day you saw a chicken. You're like, huh. No, it didn't even, it didn't start with chicken. I, I've been eating, I've been a carnivore since I got off the bus early to go into the butcher shop and order stuff on my mom's account. Like my, the butcher shop was around the corner from my house. So I would just get off there, go in, they would feed me cold cuts. My mom loves to talk about how I ordered lamb chops once. Like I had to, got two lamb chops. I went home, I grilled them, I ate them. And she marched into the butcher and she said, if you ever give him lamb chops, and you do not send lamb chops for me. I'm not paying the bills anymore. So that did not happen. I didn't have any. But Some I'm, kids go to the candy store. Yeah, the I went store. to the meat store. I've always, I've always, you're a meat guy. I've oh, always been a meat we, guy. We have a lot in common. Yeah, but um, but when I was working at Adama, I realized that actually it's, it's the calling is feeding people. It's not, you know, it wasn't vegetables or meat per se. It was as in just feeding people good food because I've always loved to eat. My mom was always a great cook and we always had people over for meals and Shabbat dinners and barbecues. Actually, the day after Anna and I got married, we were looking at a farm on the Erie Canal. We still thought we were going to be, you know, organic vegetable farmers. But how many organic farmers have you met in America who walk to shul and send their kids to day school and buy kosher food? 
Uh, we have not met those. One so, right now. The lifestyle doesn't well, really well, make no, sense. Well, no, because I live in Brooklyn and oh. I have chickens in my backyard, but I, I, I walk to Jewel. I send my kids to school, but it, it doesn't work here because yeah. the, there's no farmland where there's viable Jewish communities. There were, you know, like you, you go back. Wait, to, so that must be the dream. Let's not lie. You're, no. you're trying to that. The last 200 that. years no? really were a bummer for you. <laughs> yeah, huh? we've moved in the wrong you'd direction. Be a, no, you'd be it's great actually, in Poland circa 1810. I, I, I have to say it's so funny because um, I am so glad I don't live in Poland, 1810. I got it. I, I'm just going to say that right now. And I, I, you, you may know. be again, actually. Yeah. <laughs> we may be moving well. back there. but um, So we, you know, we live in Brooklyn. We live in this quirky Jewish community. We go to a shul that was established in 1927. And this is really working for us because we get the benefits of being in a, um, you know, diverse, with quotes, Jewish community, um, though as diverse as Orthodox shuls get. Um, you know, my wife did not grow up Orthodox. So being in the part of Crown Heights that we are is great because we've got kosher food, but we've also got the Park Slope community, which has all kinds of progressive, you know, things going on. We can send our kids to Lurie Academy, which is an Orthodox school, but a post-denominational community. So it's really kind of a perfect place for us. And we don't have to, you know, be out on a farm, which is can be lonely, you know. So let's let's talk kosher meat. Yeah, uh, there's there's a stigma, right? There's a stereotype. It's horrible. It's salty, tasteless, lumpy, overly priced. How, how, did, how did things get this bad? So there's two two reasons. One is that it's not just kosher meat. Like, let's just look at mainstream meat in America. Um, if you don't keep kosher, but you just go to the supermarket and you buy some meat out of the meat case, that's probably also not going to taste very good. That's just large-scale commercial meat production. Um, I am not, you know, I grew up kosher, keeping kosher. I've never, you know, knowingly eaten non-kosher meat. Um, but I think that in a lot of ways, the trends you see in kosher meat mirror the trends you see in non-kosher meat. They just follow on a lag. So, you know, Mass-produced meat does not taste very good. When you cram animals into really small spaces, you, you just feed them lots and lots of low-quality food and pump them with antibiotics so they grow faster, you get tasteless meat. It's chewy, it's bland, doesn't have flavor. When you raise animals well, you taste that in the meat. Now, kosher meat, in some ways, it's at an, there's, there's a bunch of barriers in the system that create the kinds of hurdles that might skew it more towards like low-quality all the labor involved. You need a trained shochet, a trained slaughterman to slaughter the animals. You need trained mashkichim, supervisors, to watch every step of the process. And then you have to pay an agency for supervision. Um, the work that we talk about, menaker, the guy who takes the veins out, that's a skilled butchering position. You can't just go to, like, they call it a meat locker plant, like a small slaughterhouse, you know, out, out in the country where, you, you know, the farmers can bring one or two animals. You can't bring a steer there or a cow there and kosher slaughter it and kosher process it. You'd have to drag a shochet out there. The animal might not even be kosher if it has lung problems. And the guys who work at the meat locker plant are in no way capable of doing the deveining. Animals with lung problems are not kosher? Animals with... So like an asthmatic cow is not fit to eat? Well, it depends on the inhaler. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, 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 and what interventions we took. We learn a lot. So, yeah. so how is Grow and Behold sort of changing this and addressing this? So we raise our animals outdoors. We raise them on pasture. They don't get preventative antibiotics. If an animal... And, and this is, you know... I am not a fundamentalist. I am a pragmatist. I believe Judaism is a pragmatic religion, and I don't think fundamentalism has been good for Judaism. I mean, anybody historically. Um, you know, so let's talk about antibiotics. Never, ever given antibiotics. That's what a lot of consumers think they want. They want to eat animals that have never, ever given antibiotics. But if a cow is sick and it has an infection, the farmer in a never, ever system has two choices. Let the animal suffer 
or treat it and lose it, basically. Because once the animal is administered treatment, it can no longer be sold with the never ever, and therefore it's a financial loss. So if an animal is sick, we will medicate it. There are withdrawal periods. We don't slaughter animals that are being actively medicated. You have to wait 30, 60, 90 days. It depends on what the medication is. But we don't want the animals to suffer. Um, and that's, you know, that, that's one of those places where we're pragmatists, not fundamentalists. But, you know, what we're doing is we are trying to synthesize the main values of high quality food, environmental sustainability, and um, I guess you can call it social sustainability or, you know, things like the workers, the treatment, all of that stuff. That's what we're trying to integrate, integrate to produce the best kosher meat available. It's nice because when you produce animals well, they actually taste better. So when you raise them on pasture, when they get a, a proper feed, when they get to eat the grass like they're meant to, you taste that in the meat. When the animals aren't stressed in the slaughterhouse, their meat tastes better because they don't have as much adrenaline in that, you know, that actually gets into the meat. So that's really, that's what we're doing. Now, I want to, you know, I'm, I'm, I agree with you about fundamentalism. So I call myself a vegetarian. I probably eat meat 10 to 20 times a year in a situation where there's nothing else He's to like eat. He's white right now. Yeah, like, uh, you know. Blood is drained from his face. I mean, I should have brought you some jerky. I'm but, sorry. but Ooh, jerky. you know, and, and I think I, I mean, my <laughs> I, wife I feels know. this. My wife feels this even more strongly, which is, look, you know, all this sort of ethical stuff and the sort of foodie attitude towards good meat, kind meat, safe meat, whatever. We're still treating animals as, as ends, not 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 or as means, not ends. That's we're right. still we're still you hear that animals and. You know, no, there was a time, hear. I feel like 20 or 30 years ago, the position of people who are concerned about the ethics of the land and the ethics of other creatures was vegetarian. And then in a sense, a certain kind of foodism or ethical slaughtering, whatever, anti-factory farms have came along to say, it's OK, it's OK, it's OK. You can read your Michael Pollan and as long as you kill it yourself and look it in the eye, it's, you know. Name but at it. the end of the day, like, isn't this a step towards realizing that, like, we can eat it's more gently on the land and more kindly and more virtuously and without being preachy about it, but in our own lives, say, let's eat plants. There's a lot to unpack there. So so there's there's two pieces I want to pull out of that. One is this Michael Pollan, you have to slaughter the animal yourself and look it in the eye. I'm really not a believer in that. Thank um, you. I really, <laughs> I'm a big, you know, people hire me to do an edu- educational poultry slaughter. Like I will come to your Jewish day school. You have to provide the chickens, but it's very easy to find. You go on Craigslist, you can get them for your six, seven, Craigslist eight, eight. has a live poultry section. It has everything. They have everything. You can have sex with the live poultry in a different part of Craigslist. Yes, but that we don't want to do with the day school. Um, But, (laughs) you know, and I'll I'll slaughter three chickens for your sixth, seventh, or eighth graders. We could even do fifth graders um, or, you know, but um, and then the kids will get to see, you know, live chickens turn into kosher meat. The plucking, the evisceration, the the salting, the soaking, all that I'm sure the kids love it. They, they probably do. do. They do. It's, oh, I'm sure. It's fascinating. Yeah. And oh, my, especially my Lord. when you do it with kids who are young enough that they're not like grossed out before you start, it's, it's just it's fascinating for them. But it's been a very, very long time in Judaism since we have had a system where everybody is supposed to slaughter their own animals. Like we have to go back to even in, in, in temple era times when people were bringing sacrifices, you were not necessarily doing the slaughter. You might purchase the Paschal lamb. You'll bring it. You'll participate in the big roasting festival. But, you know, we have a system where only highly trained, vetted people who are accountable to the community are allowed to slaughter our meat. Because the fact is, killing animals is serious business. Do you have, like, you know how athletes have their like kind of like pregame rituals. Do you have your pre-slaughter ritual? Do you have like superstitions? Yeah. What's on you, your playlist? You, do you, do you have a playlist? <laughs> do you have a playlist? No, there's no. There's, do you? 
Do you do warm-ups? What, a knife how does sharpening it work? playlist. <laughs> there's no playlist. Um, you check your knives. There's a, there's a slaughterman's prayer that you say that basically says, you know, please, God, don't let me screw up. Let me do this right. You don't want to waste. You don't want to cause pain. And an animal that's not kosher is a financial loss for somebody, whether right. it's the farmer or the buyer or anybody. But the, the other thing I want to come back to is also this notion about, you know, just should we eat meat in general, sustainability in general? You know, we're in an interesting place. The meat that I produce is relatively expensive. It is more expensive than the kosher meat you could buy at the big kosher supermarket in Brooklyn or on the Ever West Side. It is as expensive, maybe even a little bit more expensive than what you're going to find in the high-end kosher butcher shop on the Upper East Side. It tastes a lot better than any of the meat, no matter where you're buying it. But the other thing to remember is there are people for whom they're going to eat as much meat as they want to eat. They can afford to, and they're not that interested in Things like sustainability, carbon emissions, all that stuff. The fact that I can sell them a tastier piece of meat than they're going to buy anywhere else is, in my mind, a net win for the world or for the whole notion of sustainability. Because those people are going to eat as much meat as they're going to eat. They should eat meat that is raised well. They should eat meat that is produced by workers who are part of a union. They should eat meat that is produced from animals that aren't crammed into big confined animal feeding operations. Um, you know, Lisa Simpson said it. You don't make friends with salad. So this, you know, like the big, the big, you know, battle cry that nobody should eat meat. We should all eat a vegetable-based diet because that's the, you know, the, you know, the answer for the planet. It may very well be that a vegetable diet is going to be better from a net carbon emissions point of view, but it's not going to happen right now. You know, the people who are going to keep eating meat and want to eat meat are going to buy meat. The listeners should know that he was looking at me the whole time while he was giving I know, this that is getting me hungry. So what is your favorite, like, most bizarre kosher regulation that we've never heard of? Oh, man, I'm, like, so in the wormhole. What's it? Nothing, nothing is bizarre to me anymore. Uh, this stuff is... Oh, man. What surprised you when you, when you first took up the knife? Oh. You know, I, I, I think one of the things that can be most shocking and probably will be shocking to those Shoking. of us. <laughs> shocking. 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 To, to, to certainly to, you know, those in this room and probably, you know, most of the folks who are listening to this podcast is the world in which who is doing the slaughter and which organization is doing the slaughter is so important to people. Things like Hasidic Shechita, which really just means Hasidic slaughtermen. But in now, a world in which Hasidic Shechita <laughs> is, yeah, sorry. Well, it's not just Hasidic Shechita. Does the Shochet go to the mikvah, the ritual bath every morning? Does the Shochet's wife just cover her hair or does she shave her head? Oh, it's so important if the Shochet's wife has is showing yeah. some locks of hair. Or she's and, just wearing a hair net. And, and, and we all laugh. It makes and, the meat taste so much better if she does. <laughs> and, and yet. And yet there are communities who are, you know, or, or and certifying agencies who these are the requirements for. Like, do, do, is that what I need? No. But that is what people it's demand. Definitely. The meat is tastier and chastier. <laughs> chastier, certainly. So final, final question Quickly, on one foot, do you remember how you and I are related? You are a cousin of my wife's grandmother, Judy. Yeah, that's that's look, look at you, you. You get a C, C plus on that. All right, that's passing. So, can you name the relation of me to your wife, Anna? No. Okay. We are second cousins once removed. Well, For, you get it. You get it. You get a B so plus. This is at a least. real yeah. I want names. Though. I want names. Oh, I can do it. Let's do it. Sure. Her great her great grandmother Rebecca was the sister of my grandfather Walter. Her grandmother Judy is the first cousin of my mother Joanne. I am the second cousin of her mother Dee Dee. She's my second cousin once removed. Our kids are third cousins. 
Boom. Uh, how do we find Grow and Behold Foods? Very easily. Growandbehold.com. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We deliver nationwide. We'll get the meat right to your home as soon I as we eat, possibly can. I will eat your meat very soon. Okay. You and will, will you it. come back and give a report on whether... On how sure. Good, we want an honest report I'll on how good their meat week. is. All right. Great. I'll eat um, it today. <laughs> I Na- eat a lot of meat. Naf, hey now, Na- Naf, hey you've been a fabulous Jew of the week. Um, Thank you. You have a child due any second. Your it, it, it could it, by it the was time due this, last week. So. By the time this airs, you'll be a father of three. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J. Crew! it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Browse and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com slash unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolf. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag slash UO member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our Gentile of the Week is Glenn Washington, the host of WNYC's Snap Judgment. Before creating Snap, Glenn worked as an educator, a diplomat, a community activist, a mountain hollerer, a foot stomper. He's composed music. He's done spoken word. I caught up with him by Skype last All month. Right. So you're the Gentile of the Week. You ever been a Gentile of the Week before? Uh, kind of, yeah. But yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so... Um, I just wanted to have you on because, you know, what we do on our podcast involves some storytelling and you've become like one of the new princes of storytelling. So do you ever worry in what you do that there's going to be storytelling fatigue that sets in, that there are going to be too many podcasts, too many books, too many whatever about it? 
I do worry about the overuse of the term storytelling. It seems like everything now is storytelling. Everybody, with, you're designing a, um, a roller coaster and you're a storyteller or whatever. But um, as far as the actual process of telling stories, there's, um, it's hard. And so I think that anything that's hard, there's just going to be people who are going to excel at it in a certain way. And, um, you know, so I, I just think that the process itself, you know, the, the grind of trying to make this stuff work, it, it weeds out a lot of people. Yeah. So what makes them good? Like, how do you know when you have a winner? I know that I have a winner when I feel something in both my, my head and in my, in my heart. You know, there's an emotional component to it. We want to make stories at Snap that are as smart as anything you'll hear anywhere. But we're also looking for that heart language to, to sing as well. And that's what's hard. That's, you know, making sure that if there's an innovation with Snap, it's an innovation of perspective. We're trying to let the listeners wear someone else's skin. And that's a difficult trick, as it turns out. And when I feel something, when I feel the anger, when I feel the pain, the joy, the whatever that that person feels in that moment, I know that I'm on to something. Okay, so give me an example. Like, what's a moment where you had one of those moments where you thought, okay, now I'm feeling it go beyond the head into the heart? I, I felt it recently. We're, we're in the middle of a live show right now. This is what, this is what happens oftentimes especially on a, on, a, on a live setting, it's a little bit different. We're working with the storyteller to construct a, a story that uh, over something that really happened, something that's, that's true. And I'm, this, I'm like anyone else. I'm like every other storyteller, every other person, I think, and that there's stuff about my, myself that I recoil from or stuff about my experience or my background or whatever I recoil from. And it, uh, t- more often than not, Real stories are found right there, right? Wherever you're picking at scabs, that's where the real story is. Recently, um, one of the finest storytellers in the world, I say that, his name is Don Reed, and he had a story and it wasn't quite working. And again, one of the best storytellers in the nation, and he didn't want to go there. And and my job was to basically say, you know, he was telling a story about his sister, who was transsexual. And he was, it felt to me like he was glossing over something big. And, we, and, my, and uh, I kept asking him again and again, what happened here? What happened there? What happened there? What happened when you had that final meeting with her? And he kept dodging and weaving. And finally, he just said, I didn't tell her what I should have. I wasn't strong enough. She protected me all that time. And I couldn't protect her. And he, and he wept. He wept. And and it was, um, it was a moment where the story, this is what he was trying to dance around. The story that he was trying to tell was there, but he couldn't even admit it to himself. And once he did, the story became so powerful and so magical. And he really took us with him. And um, it was it was a real gift that he allowed himself to go, he, that he that, that he gave everybody, and I really appreciated it. So even the really good storytellers sometimes they chicken out unless you push them. Yeah, and I'm a I'm a good storyteller. I chicken out all the time. 
<laughs> I chicken out all the time. I don't want to, you know, I don't, because I, I want to have a. Because you want everyone to like you, isn't it? I want them to like me. Like I want them to like me. I want, them to, I want myself to think I'm a better person than I am. <laughs> I don't want to see that sometimes, that those aspects of myself that aren't heroic or, or whatever. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's humbling. No one wants to be humble and no one are to be humbled and especially have that happen in front of a million people. Um, but that's where the stories are. So I always, I always joke when I'm teaching essay writing to young people, I say, nobody wants to read your college application essay about your parents' divorce, the death of a pet or your trip to Europe. They say they're just like, they're, they're too far gone. They're just cliches. Are there, are there those cliches in the, in the live or oral storytelling world, those two or three topics that are just so played out that, that it, it would take a lot to make somebody want to hear another story about them? Oh, my goodness. There's so many of them at this point. Um, and I blame them all. No. Um, the, uh, a lot of them, uh, you know, my coming out story. Right. Or um, the first time someone called me an N-word or whatever. Um, these, um, and, and, and now I, I, I learned a very valuable lesson from the old man. In Asia. <laughs> so, I mean, some of the cliches, right? The cliches, a lot of times they will come from marginalized people kind of breaking through. So the coming out story or the first time you're called the N-word. But do, do I mean, I sometimes wonder, like, what do I as the straight white middle class guy have to bring to the table in that I have faced, I, I in particular have faced so little adversity. Do, do Does adversity make for good stories? There's another way of saying, are black people better storytellers? <laughs> You know, what's interesting, you know, we can say the same thing about Jewish people. And and yes, adversity does make for great great (laughs) stories. Um, And that, you know, the storytelling traditions that come from both of our communities. And I and I one of the things um, there's a guy, (laughs) um, a good a good Hebrew soul, uh, Josh Healy. He told a story Mm -hmm. recently on Snap. And if you look at the fact pattern for that story, the fact pattern is. I went to the water park with my nephew. I remember that story. Yep. And when you, but when you, but the, but the, but the power of it, of his storytelling, just made it a masterpiece. And um, so, so I, I guess I'm saying adversity and everything like that. That it certainly has its place, but some of these storytellers can just can tell. Um, to make a movie happen out of a story about crossing the street. Do you have a favorite right now? A favorite story? Story. Yeah. No. That you've done. That you've done on your show. <laughs> you know what? Um, my favorite story is always a story I'm working on. <laughs> and I'm working on a story right now. I was in a, in the uh, the BART, which is the uh, the subway here. I was right. on the train. I'm about to go up some. I'm an escalator actually. And I see this woman and she says, hey, I know you. And I look at her and I started sobbing in the middle of the BART station. Um, this woman, she was the, uh, the, the, the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit nurse when my boy was born. And... Seeing her just brought that point back when when the 
when uh, we had this healthy, what I thought was a healthy baby boy, I took him to get him warmed up at the in a incubator, and ER broke out, and we thought we were going to lose him, and. I mean, I, I can't even tell. That's the story I can't tell. I can't even tell that yet. I'm not, I'm not ready to tell that story. It was maybe the happiest I've ever been is pulling that um that stroller away from that hospital. Like, my boy, he's fine. My boy is fine. I'm one of the lucky ones that got to walk out of there and have and have a good a good, happy ending. But I wonder, you know, I'm wondering as I'm putting this together, if how how that type of reaction that I'm I, I'm there's there's snot running down my nose I'm teary eyed I'm blubbering like a baby because <laughs> of just seeing her put me back in that spot and the episode that we're making is called gratitude and the gratitude that I have for her for. All of those nurses that stayed with me late night, for all of that love that they gave to strangers, I don't. Even, I, I'm having a hard time putting it into words, and I'm a wordsmith. And that's the story I'm working on right now, and it's my favorite story right now, of course. That was me talking with Glenn Washington, the host of WNYC's Snap Judgment. I once wrote a piece about him for The Atlantic magazine that they headlined NPR's Great Black Hope, which everyone at NPR was really, really mad about. But Glenn really dug it. A few Mazel Tovs of the week. Stephanie? I got one. My yeah. Mazel Tov is to Seth Cohen from the OC. He's been getting me through this, you know, post-election haze. I've been watching I'm on like the fourth or fifth episode of season two, Ben Cohen and I. Ben Cohen, nay, Seth Cohen, basically, um, are watching it together, and it's been really beautiful for us. I love that you're now getting to The O.C., which is from 2003. No, I mean rewatching it. I haven't watched it since high school, and Ben has watched it like five times. It's and I'm amazing. discovering that all of Ben's like moves are actually like, originated, like, originated in The O.C. He learned from Adam Brody. Yeah, the way a little I, bit of Ryan Atwood, too. The way I learned from Dylan Walsh. Yeah. From Dylan Walsh. And, and, not from <laughs> David Silver. Not <laughs> at, at all. Why'd you have to Jew me? Why couldn't I learn from Dylan Walsh? Yeah, you know. No, it was Brendan Walsh. Why couldn't I learn from Dylan yeah. McKay? You definitely didn't learn from Dylan McKay. I'd you learned that. from Brendan Walsh. I learned everything I from learned Dylan from McKay. Brenda Walsh. You, you did learn from Brenda Walsh. You learned from Kelly. Liel? I learned from Steve. Um, <laughs> my muscle. Who we have to get on the show because Ian Ziring is a great Twitter Jew. He is. He, he is. is a, he's great. Sounds like just a great guy who would get totally. along uh, with very well. My muzzle of this week goes to the former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin. Here's a sentence you don't hear often uh, for for standing up uh, and and noting that, uh, you know, when a politician just tries to bully a company to ignore the uh, demands of the free market and do something according to some central government planning, uh, as Donald Trump did with Carrier, that is not conservative principle. And so we now live in an age in which the uh, torchbearer of uh, conservative purity and intellectual honesty is 
Sarah Palin. Yay, oh, Lord. America. Yay, America. Hashtag 2016. Mazel tov to you, America. Mazel tov, America. Uh, my mazel tov this week, I'm going to turn over to our listener, Sarah Link Ferguson, who asked if she could have the mazel tov. And she's an awesome listener, a loyal, a loyal devotee. And I said, sure. She wrote to send props to her rabbi, Doug Alpert of Kol Ami in Kansas City, Missouri. She said, Rabbi Doug dedicates his life to social justice and inspires so many in our community far beyond the walls of our synagogue with his action. He was recently arrested along with hundreds of protesters seeking to raise the minimum wage to $15. Doug spent around six hours in jail and said it likely won't be the last time he's arrested for civil disobedience. Given our current political climate, the uptick in racial and ethnic violence, etc., I think we can all learn from Rabbi Doug's example and be the change we want to see in the world. I agree. Rabbi Doug, you get the mazel tov. And if you need a lawyer, I think Sandy Cohen's available. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Our show is edited by Noah Levinson and produced by Alyssa Goldstein and Shira Talushkin. Kosher Slaughtering this week is by our guest, Naftali Hanau. On Twitter, we're at Tablet Mag. Our music is by Golem. We normally record in Argo Studios, but this week we're in CDM, which serves only ethically slaughtered podcasts. Shalom, friends. Well,